0: Also, you didn't get enough sleep last night. No big deal, you might say, and actually, it is a big deal. Sleep deprivation has severe short-term and long-term consequences. Recent scientific studies show the problems that can develop from sleep deprivation. And according to one study, sleep deprived -deprived people can act as dumb as someone who is drunk one study, they split volunteers into three different groups, and for 14 days, one group slept for eight hours a night, the second group slept for six hours a night, and the third group slept for just four hours a night. They did cognitive tests there after that uh, two-week period, and they showed that the people who had gotten six hours of sleep a night, so the middle group, showed a similar reaction time as people whose blood alcohol content was 0.1%. In other words, legally drunk people. But there's another problem. Sleep-deprived people don't know that they're sleep-deprived. And uh, the so-called experts suggest that 1 to 3% of the population, population can survive on just a few hours of sleep each night. The trouble is it's easy to think that you're one of these few here. Because after a long period of sleep deprivation, you stop reali- realizing how tired you are. It uh, leads to a foggy brain, worse in vision, impaired driving, and trouble remembering. And long-term effects can include imbe- uh, obesity, insulin resistance, and heart disease. And most Americans who suffer from chronic sleep deprivation do so, and they don't know it, and therefore they won't admit it. And another survey concluded that Americans are among the world's leaders in sleep deprivation. The United States, along with France and Taiwan, so these three countries here, rank among the, most, uh, the top three most sleep-deprived nations in the world. Guess which city is the most sleep-depri- sleep-deprived in the world? New York City. New York City, you probably could figure that out, right? And uh, sleep-deprived Americans report this issue negatively impacts their, their health. 57% would say that, their mental health and their home life. 50 to 70 million Americans have chronic sleep loss or sleep disorder of some kind. AAA put out a study. I said that two out of five U.S. drivers have unintentionally fallen asleep at the wheel. 14-year study at Penn State University found that men who slept less than six hours a night were four times more likely to die over the 14-year period than men who got at least seven hours of sleep per night. And in the study of 17 to 24-year-olds, they found that for each hour of lost sleep, levels of psychological distress rose by 5%. One of the things that... um, you are trained to do when you counsel is ask those individuals who are needing counseling what's your sleep patterns? What's your physical sleep patterns? What's your eating patterns? What's your exercise patterns? It it plays into things. You might want to know where Maine fits into this. Where does the state of Maine fit into this? Well Maine is number 19 out of 50 states as far as how well we sleep um, with number 1 being great and number 50 being absolute worst here. Um, 33% of adults in Maine are, would say they're getting insufficient sleep. So a good 67% say you're getting good sleep here in Maine. I can understand why you can sleep better in Maine. Um, uh, Maine uh, is, is 18th in the nation here in the States with a number of poor mental health days per month. Um, percentage of adults with heart disease that arise from, from lack of sleep, uh, seventh highest. And uh, percent of adults who are physically active, we're one of the highest, 11th highest in the nation, 80% here. Um, But along with getting enough sleep, exercise, of course, is an important part of this here. And in our psalm this morning, in our series, Summer in the Psalms, it's going to go through September, David needs sleep. David needs sleep. Now, sleep isn't something you can necessarily snap your fingers and make happen, is it? Some of you would like to sleep, and you're having trouble falling asleep, right? Well, this morning I'd like you to bring a message from from Psalm chapter four called "Can't Steal This." You see, there were people who are trying to steal things from David, things that they couldn't necessarily get their hands on and their fingers on here, but things that they were they could control in other ways. Because you'll find one of the one of the propensities of human nature is if. People can't control you, they'll try to control the information about you. And so that's what happens in Psalm chapter 4. Psalm 3 a couple weeks ago was a morning psalm that faced the day's anxieties. Psalm 4 is an evening psalm because the reason he needs sleep is because he has been wronged by others. He's been wronged because others had lied about him, they had slandered his reputation, they had assumed things about him that weren't true, and they had spread those lies. Lies. Now, we're not told when this happened in David's lifetime. In chapter 3, the things that were going on were during when Absalom led the uprising against David. However, the Psalms are not arranged chronologically, but they're arranged according to themes. Uh, and so, chapters 1 through 41 uh, correspond uh, very closely here to uh, uh, other parts of the, of the er- earlier Scriptures, the Old Testament, the books of the law. We're not told when this was happening in David's lifetime, but what we do know is these sins of the tongue against David were very trying to him, very heavy on him, and so he turns to the Lord for help. Has that ever happened to you? That uh, someone has made an unjust accusation against you? Or you're at work and the secretary down the hall stops by your desk and says, you know what so-and-so said about you yesterday? And she pours out the story and maybe even embellishes a little. Or a business associate uh, circulates a memo and you're, you're you're pictured in an unjust light. What do you do? How do you feel? You know the confusion you feel about that when somebody's spreading lies about you. Who do you tell? Well, most of us would go to our friends or family members and complain and look for sympathy. We might even start a slander campaign of our own. It might go, well, the only reason she said that is because she... And I want you to understand from this psalm that the enemy will lie, he will cheat, and he will steal, but God's final say about you in Christ gives greater joy than the enemy's best day. And what we see in these verses that Paul read a few minutes ago is, first of all, in verse 1, we are to knock expectantly. Knock expectantly. He says in verse 1, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me or relieved me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. David here is knocking at the door to the palace of his father with his request to the only one who can actually do something about it. And he identifies what his Father is all about. His Father is the God of my righteousness, David says. He means He is the one who will never deviate from what is right. He will never move away from His righteous principles and promises. He is the one who has compassion. That. Phrase, Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Is a uh, distress. Is a, is a word enlarged. Is a word of compassion. It's a word that's close to the Hebrew word for womb. Mother's womb is, is where that baby is cared for, or nourished before that baby is is given birth. And, and, it, and, it's, and it's a reference here to God's supreme care, the tenderness of love. And it has the concept of of an emotional intensity for someone. Do you remember when Solomon was king in First Kings chapter three, and there were um, two mothers? Uh, well, one was a real mother, and one wasn't a mother. And somehow during the evening, a, 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 a babies, uh, one mother's baby had died, and the others had lived. And these ladies brought their uh, brought their their case to the king and said. Uh, and one of the moms had switched the babies. And the mom said, this is not my baby, the dead the dead infant. She took my baby and switched the baby. And everyone said, no, that's my baby. And They were going back and forth. And Solomon said, well, I know what we're going to do. We'll cut the baby down the middle and both can have the baby. And the real mother said, what? No, she can have the baby, Right. She can have the living baby because she'd rather, of course, have that baby alive. That was a that was a that was a, a heart of, of compassion and 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 that's that's the picture here of a of a mother. God is pictured here as as a mother who has compassion and tenderness of love. He has enlarged me when I was in distress. Notice what the rest of the verse says in verse one. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. That word mercy, you could say, uh, uh, is is along the lines of, be gracious to me. Be gracious to me. What does it mean to be gracious to someone? Well, grace is the sheer, unmerited, undeserved goodness of God that God shows to people. And David here is rightly assessing him, saying, Lord, I don't deserve this, but I need You to step in. I need you to answer my cry. And here, look what he says uh, in verse 1. Hear me when I call. And at the end, hear my prayer. He expects his father to answer his cry. He knocks expectantly at the door. Hear me. Do what you said you would do for your children. Because our God loves to do that. The story is told of uh, Alexander the Great, the leading, uh, who had a leading general whose daughter was getting married. Alexander the Great said, "Uh, yeah, I'd be happy to contribute to your daughter's uh, wedding. He knew it was going to be expensive, so he said, just ask me for something. And so this leading general wrote to Alexander the Great. He wrote out a request for an enormous sum, a a ridiculous sum, ridiculous. And when Alexander's treasurer saw the request, he brought it to Alexander and he said, I'm sure you're going to be cutting this man's head off now for what... He's done. The audacity of asking for something like this enormous, ridiculous request. Who does he think you are? And Alexander said this. Give it to him. By such an outlandish request, he shows that he believes that I am both rich and generous. He was flattered by it. And friends, so much more. This is the God we have who owns the cattle in a thousand hills, who owns all things, who is all powerful, who is so rich, and He is so generous. And He is, is the one who does not turn us away when we as little children get out of bed and we ask for a cup of water. Luke 11 says, what kind of father when a child asks for an egg is going to give him a scorpion? No earthly father would do that who wouldn't have some sense of common grace, moral compassion. Our God doesn't sleep or tired and He is more generous, He is more gracious to us than any of our earthly fathers and He works while we're sleeping. So knock expectantly here is the first point that David wants us to understand. Come to Him. Your reputation slandered? Lies being spread? Take it to your Father. And knock expectantly. But secondly, I'd like you to notice in verses 2 through 5, protest righteously. Protest righteously. You see, what's going to happen in verses 2 through 5 is David's then going to speak to his enemies. He's going to give his enemies advice. But he's, he's going to protest at what they're doing, and he's going to say, here's the right. Uh, actions. Here's what you need to do. And so he's not yelling at his enemies. What he's actually doing, and this is very interesting in the Psalms, here, this is unusual. He's giving advice to them that he himself is following as well. So he's reminding them that God responds to the faithful. Look, verse two. Oh, ye sons of men, how long will ye turn my glory into shame? How long will ye love vanity and seek after leasing? See that word leasing is the word delusions. Lies are spreading lies. How long, he says. Remember, David's name has been he's being dragged in the mud, his honor's been turned to shame. And verse two, they love their delusions and their bias and their warping and spreading that of others of David's life. They're devoting, they're seeking. The word is devoting their, their energies to put a twist on his reputation, to undermine his God given place and role. And David said, okay, are you tired of it yet? How long am I going to keep doing this? Um, uh, when are you going to stop this worthless slander and gossip? Have you had enough now? He's saying to his enemies. Have you ever felt that? Felt that? You're just at the point where, okay, stop. Enough. Okay, I get it. You don't like me, right? But Stop. Uh, Perhaps you've experienced this in a family rift or a workplace jealousy or, God forbid, one of God's own people. Biting, devouring, as Paul says in Galatians. And it probably looks like everyone has abandoned him. But David reminds his enemies that God has not turned his back. So here's what he says. But... Know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for Himself. The Lord will hear when I call on Him. In other words, you can be sure of this. That the Lord sets apart the godly for Himself, and I know that because of that, the Lord will answer when I call upon Him. That's what David's saying here. And so there's several things that are going to follow in verses 2-5 through five here. Um, that David's going to advise his enemies that he himself is going to follow in integrity and honor. It gives us a pattern to also do ourselves in trials when others are treating you this way. Verse 3, he wants them to grasp the truth that Yahweh looks after his own kids. God looks after his own kids. Verse 4, that fear and anger, they're going to be natural things, but don't let it become sin. Guard your heart. And then in verse 4, after you speak to the Lord, be quiet and listen to Him. Put priority on your time with God. Verse 5, serve God in righteousness. Serve Him rightly. And then verse 5 again, anchor yourself in Yahweh. So protest righteously is what David here is teaching us. What does it mean to protest righteously? Well, first of all, um, in verse uh, verse 3, know who you are in God. When that slander comes, when the mistreatment comes, when you're passed over, when lies about you are spreading, you need to not have your eyes on the situation ultimately. You need to know who you are in God. You need to stop listening to yourself and you need to start preaching the truth of God's Word to yourself. He says, you know the Lord set apart the godly for Himself. The Lord hears when I call to Him. What does he mean by this? Well, a few years ago, um, there was a a couple who were driving down the street in Vancouver. And they looked to the side of the road and they saw a couple of hitchhikers. And one guy is dressed like Bono of the the group U2. And they pull over and sure enough, it's the singer Bono and his assistant. And it turns out that his assistant and him had gone out for a walk and it started to rain um, just before this couple happened upon them. And so Bono and his assistant um, sat in the back with a couple's dog. And Bono wasn't accustomed to sticking out his thumb on the side of the road. Well, no matter what, he was still Bono. Nothing's changed even if he's on the side of the road, right? And David here is kind of suggesting that to his enemies. He's saying, okay, I might be in this situation. You might be saying this about me, but this is who I really am. This is who I am. I might look this way. uh, 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 My circumstances might have changed. This is who I am in God. Or here's a story from a couple hundred years ago. Thomas Jefferson was at a Baltimore hotel. And he was looking for accommodations. He was in his working clothes because he had a farm. And he was splattered with mud. And the proprietor of that hotel uh, looked, looked him over and said, We have no room for you, sir. And so Jefferson left. Well, a friend came in soon after and told the proprietor that he had just turned away Thomas Jefferson, the Vice President of the United States of America. And of course, a signer of the Declaration of Independence. So that guy, that hotel operator here, was thought he was dealing with a dirty farmer. But just because someone thought that Jefferson was a dirty farmer didn't change who he really was. Friends, the weapon against slander and lies is first of all to remember how God sees you. How God sees you. To hold on to what He has declared about you in Christ. Someone has said, those who despise us may regard us as a step above scum, but that does not alter the fact that we are His new covenant ones who He has set apart for Himself. That's what David says here. Know that the Lord has set apart him that is godly for Himself. The Lord will hear when I call Him. So David says in the message, I might not look like much, and here's what's going on. And the truth is, I am not much. But here's how God has chosen to see me by His grace. Here's how He sees me in relationship. Here, I might look like the hitchhiker on the side of the road. I might look like the dirty farmer. But God knows who I am. And I am God's possession. And God has set me apart for Himself and God hears my prayer because of that. I am in relationship with the God of the universe. That makes your enemies pretty small, doesn't it? And so after reminding his enemies that God cares for His own, David then says this with a statement of confidence, the Lord will hear when I call to Him. Are you confused by attacks upon you? You'll find instruction here in David's procedure, I believe. In your thinking, as you renew your mind, after you stagger a little bit, remind your enemies that God will take care of you. That you will find find the very act of reminding them will remind you And strengthen your own confidence in the Lord. And quiet your soul. Here's what else under this protest righteously. Not only know who you are in God's eyes, but secondly, filter your anger. Filter your anger. He says in verse 4, stand in awe and sin not, commune with your own heart upon your bed, and be still, Selah. That word awe there could be a word that's translated anger as the Greek translation of the Old Testament does, and that's how Paul takes it in Ephesians when he talks about don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. He's taking this verse here. Or it could be fear. It's the idea of trembling. It's the idea of trembling and it could be either way with fear or with anger. And I think it's the idea of anger. And what what, what he's saying here is don't be naive about your anger. You're going to have a natural reaction, aren't you? You're, the, the, the hairs in the back of your neck are going to go up here when somebody starts spreading slander about you. Don't be naive about it. Understand that anger is a... Result. It reveals what's important to you, and many times anger can show you what is misordered in your life. The things that make you angry are very good indicators. Very good indicators that perhaps something may be a higher priority than should be. James four one tells us that anger is rooted in your heart and its desires, and it's two ways. Either something you want. Isn't happening, or something you don't want is happening, and anger wells up in your heart. And so, filter your anger. Ask yourself: these are good. These are good pruning times. When 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 uh, you're accused wrongly here, ask yourself: what am I really upset about? What is behind my anger? And yes, it'll it'll be a reaction for you to be angry. But don't let that anger be unfiltered. Search your heart. Because, because what comes out of the mouth lays, lies deep in the heart. Listen to this. Any anger isn't necessarily wrong, by the way. There's a righteous anger. But any wrong anger is against God. And any right anger is for God's glory and not your own. So filter your anger. It's a good heart check here. And then he says... Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. So don't, let, don't sin, don't let your anger control you. Think about it overnight. Remain silent. This is an evening psalm here. So have it, uh, take it to God, thirdly. Take it to God and leave it there under protest righteously. Take it to God and leave it, for, leave it there. It does no good for you to wage warfare. But you have the Lord of hosts. He's pretty good at waging warfare. And he discerns what the real enemy is. And he discerns how to deal with it. It is no good for you to wage warfare. Give it to the Lord of hosts. He's the mighty warrior. And when you give it to the Lord of hosts, quit reaching your puny hand up there and trying to take it back from Him. That's what verse 4 is about. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Be still. And then the psalmist David says... And verse 5, Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. So fourthly, under protest righteously is have a right heart behind your service to God. If you haven't left the complaint with the Lord, you can't serve Him rightly. You can't serve Him in the right way. If you're holding on to this and harboring this, It's like holding on to a coal and it's going to burn you. It's holding on and harboring poison and you're going to be the one that's poisoning. Your hands have to have presented that to the Lord and if you're going to serve the Lord, your hands have to be empty. For God to accept our sacrifice, our hands have to be empty. We cannot grip what we should have left with Him. It won't work to worship and serve Him in that way. It never does. It never does. So have a right heart behind your service to God. And then fifthly, under protest righteously, believe that He will do what you cannot do with a problem. Believe that He will do what you cannot do with a problem. Notice what He says um, in verse 5. And put your trust in the Lord. And put your trust in the Lord. See, God always does what is good and right. I don't. And the psalmist, me and you, can be anchored in God's righteous nature and trust Him to do a much better job than I could ever do. You see, the way I deal with it is probably going to be tainted. God knows the beginning from the end. He knows all the angles. He knows the possibilities. He knows the course of action. And He has all the power at His disposal to do what is right. And He is not bound by time and space to do His wise will. Now what about me? Well, My human heart in these situations are going to be bent on destroying my enemies. (laughs) God isn't driven by that. Yes, in the end, God will destroy his enemies, and the Bible says his feet will be on the necks of his enemies. There is a day coming with resolution, and that's why Paul says in Romans that vengeance is his. You trust him in that. But God is ultimately driven by a passion for his glory, which also includes a merciful and gracious nature, and also included, may I remind you, dying for his enemies. Dying for his enemies. So protest righteously with this right way. Other words is a way to express it. We're not bottling up our emotions. We're not just trying to stuff them back in because they're going to come out. But we are directing them to the Lord. That's a proper way here. And then thirdly and finally, rest confidently. Rest confidently. Verse six, the psalmist says again, there be many who say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift Thou up the light of Thy countenance upon us. Here's how this is related again to the Old Testament because Numbers 6, 24-26, Aaron the high priest had said to Israel, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His face toward you and give you peace. So what David is saying here is, some will say that the Lord is not active, He's not busy, He won't work, He's not, can't be trusted, He's not going to show us any good. But Lord, I know on the basis of what You said in Your Word, that You delight to show us Your goodness. And Lord, lift up the light of Your countenance upon us. You could say this, let Your face smile upon us. Lord, Look upon me with joy and power. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, also wrote another song. And he pictures the life of Peter. As Peter denies the Lord Christ and the Word of God says that as Jesus was on trial, he looked at Peter. What a haunting look that might have been. And then... The look that God, that Jesus Christ gave him after the cross. Accepted in Christ. And Newton writes this I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood, who fixed his loving eyes on me as near his cross I stood. And never till my dying breath will I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins. His blood had spilt and helped to nail Him there. But with a second look, He said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for your ransom paid. I died that you might live. Forever etched upon my mind is the look of Him who died, the Lamb I crucified. And now my life will sing the praise of pure atoning grace that looked on me and gladly took my place. David saying, Look upon me. And notice what he says after that. Thou hast put gladness or joy in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their new wine increased. This is why the psalmist can have peace and joy inside, though outside might seem so fragile. This is why he can have inner peace from the Lord that outshines the wicked's joy on their best day. Because his joy is from above knowing that he has been looked upon with God's grace, with God's favor. Theirs is temporary, dependent on their circumstances. We had a good year. The very real presence of God is the light of God's face lifted up on David. And what we need to understand from this on this side of the cross as New Covenant believers is this. Has God lifted up His face upon you while you are yet His enemy and shined on you? And Scripture says He has done that in the person of Jesus Christ. The grace of God, Titus says, has appeared into salvation for all men. He has shined upon you in love and grace in Christ. And if He has done that while you were still His enemy, how much more will He continue to do that as His beloved child that you now are? Will He not continue to do so as beloved child that can never be separated from His love? And so David here is reminded that the One who has shown Him good in the past can be counted on to show Him good again by God. Himself. Here we are gathered together today. We are in a, a new covenant assembly of those who 2 Corinthians 3 tells us that, 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 that our faces have been unveiled, that we behold the glory of God shining on the face of Christ and we are being transformed from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 3.18, chapter 4, verse 6. That will help you sleep when the reason you can't sleep is because people have said some bad things about you. That will help you sleep. And so the psalmist says, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. For thou, Lord, only, only you, makest me dwell in safety. Can you think of some people in the New Testament who had some crazy things going on and were wronged by others? Like Peter in prison the night before he's to be executed by Herod? The angel has to do what? To get him out of the prison. First of all, he has to wake him up. Peter's sleeping. Paul in Second Corinthians seven verses two through seven, Paul had been slandered Things have been said about him. He had been misconstrued by the Corinthians in Second Corinthians seven. He says, I have peace and I have comfort that God's given me that I want to share with you. So Paul can sleep. Let me close with this another example here in church history. A man named Nicholas Ridley. He was a British clergyman, caught in controversy and the England in the 1550s for standing for what the Word of God says in opposition to the government. And he was scheduled to be burned at the stake in Oxford for his faith. The night before he used to be tied to the stake and roasted alive, his brother offered to stay with him in his last hours. Ridley refused. He said he was going to bed, and that he was going to sleep as soundly that night as he ever did in his life. That's supernatural grace and peace. And that's exactly what David's saying here in verse 8. In peace, I'm going to both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O oh Lord, makes me dwell in safety. They can't steal that. That's prayer. Thank You, Lord, for the security that You give us in You. You are indeed a shelter in the time of storm, a refuge and a strong place in time of trouble. And may these truths minister to our hearts, and may they be embedded and be the things that we remember and turn to in the proper way of taking our cares and worries to the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed. Clint will have a quick Iwana meeting up